I'm Mike Gaston, and I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 132 of the podcast. That's 132, 132. And I'm recording this a little late. It's um, 9.30 at night on August 3rd. It's Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. Lydia and I spent a really lovely afternoon at the beach. I have to say, uh, you know, I've been back in Charleston for about a week now. Uh, I've been traveling a lot this year, first part of the year, a lot of travel for work. Um, grateful for the work as always. Uh, those of you wondering, if you don't know, I do strategy work. I'm a consultant. I work with privately owned businesses to help them develop strategy, revenue strategies, marketing, branding, etc. And um, been really busy. But this year, because I've been traveling so much, I've hardly been to the beach at all. I mean, hardly. And it kind of has been getting in my head. I'm like, I'm living in this city and I'm not getting to the beach. Not that like, like hanging out at the beach isn't like a party for me. I just love the ocean. There's something about that white noise, that kind of roar from the ocean wave in the background, the waves in the background, the, 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 the heat, the sun, uh, the smells, the sounds, the sights, the sand, it's just very relaxing. And, um, so I like getting out to the beach cause it just makes me feel kind of grounded a little bit, you know, just, so we got to the beach today. It was overcast today. It was a beautiful day, but, but overcast, um, little cloud coverage. And uh, Lydia set up camp. She, she, <laughs> she cut her foot on some oysters a handful of days ago and so her foot, it's, it's fine, but it was a little tender. So she, that was healing up. So she set up camp with a book and I just went for a walk. I walked for probably, I don't know, 40 minutes, uh, along the shore and just really refreshing. So anyway, um, it's nine 30 and I'm like, you know what? I'm behind a few days in the podcast. I want to just sit down and do this. I, I don't want to go to bed with this thing hanging over my head. And I don't mean it like I need to get this work done, but like, I, I kind of want to, address um, the topic today. So I spent a fair amount of time this weekend kind of reacquainting myself uh, with the chapter that we're going to talk about. We're going to continue uh, with our series on Eric Vogelin's book, The New Science of Politics. book came out in the early 1950s. It's based on a series of talks he gave, and uh, he's kind of laying out a framework for a new way, a new science of politics to approach politics. Really great book. Um, and if any of you that have been listening to the podcast know I am not uh, kind of breaking this book down from the position of an expert. I'm just an amateur, a novice. Uh, you know, we found the book fascinating, read it a couple times and um, thought, you know, I want to use the the podcast as a, as a way to kind of even get a better understanding. So really what I've been doing is just kind of talking about the various aspects of the book as I work through chapter by chapter. And um, I'm not breaking down every aspect of his argument. I'm not even doing his argument justice necessarily. Uh, but it's a way for me to kind of get my arms around. In the hopes, I don't want this to be selfish. The hopes is, uh, my hope is that in doing this, maybe it helps you wrestle with some of the ideas too. If you're interested in, in a political science, if you're interested in society and where things are going right now, if you feel maybe even a little bit 
I'll say hopeless. This is a good book. It doesn't have all the answers, but it, but uh, Vogelin, you know, pr- very impressively frames, uh, you know, where we are now, but he frames it back, you know, in the 1950s and talks about why um, modernism and postmodernism are the way they are and the problems that arise out of that. And then also in doing so, I think, provides some ways that we can think about mankind and society that provides some hope, not meaning just you can sit at home and hope, but but I think Vogelin frames some things that help us think about how uh, we could order our society, what politics, our political structures, et cetera, could look like. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit. Now, I've been kind of um, pre-selling, you know, that we're going to talk about this character, I think I've said from the 12th century, I think he's from the 1200s. So he, he might be from the 13th century, maybe he's from the 11th, 1100s. Now I have to look uh, as I'm talking, but I've been kind of pre-selling this character. I've been referring to him as Joachim of Flora. Um, and I looked up uh, online how to pronounce his name. And I have found that his name is actually Joachim. Uh, his name is pronounced Joachim. It's spelled J-O-A-C-H-I-M, J-O-A-C-H-I-M. So I just looked at that and for some reason thought, oh, yeah, that's Joachim. <laughs> so m- my main man, Joachim here, uh, but uh, is really Joachim, Joachim. Joachim or Joachim depends. I mean, if you're an American, you're going to say Joachim. But I think, uh, you know, P- Europeans, et cetera, would say Joachim. Anyway, um, but I've been kind of pre-selling this character, Joachim of Flora, and because Joachim, um, and he in his work did come out in the 1200s, by the way, so so he would be 13th century. Uh, but Joachim was essentially a heretic. I mean, he he put out some heretical ideas about society. He and and ways to think about society. And when I say this is heretical, you'd say, well, you know, you, how could saying something about history be heretical? But he, it was a Christian teaching, a Christian conception of the world. Truly, it was Gnostic uh, in nature, but it, it took Christian symbolism and Christian ideas and Christian theology and doctrine and, and really the idea of the Trinity and applied the Trinity to history to say, hey, this is what happened back in this age. This is what's going on in this current age. And this is the age to come. And, and that you would think that something that was shared in 1260, some idea that came out in the 1200s would have been a blip and would have no impact or effect on us today. But really, it was the beginning of a Gnostic project that we are deep deep, deep in the midst of. Now, you know, intellectual historians, um, historians in general, political scientists, etc., might say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, this this has nothing to do with the 1200s. And, and it's not necessarily that, that people today in leadership or thought leaders are reading Joachim's work and saying, aha, this is the answer, and then applying his thinking to our current age. But his, his thinking had an impact that has uh, reverberated and changed kind of the way that we think in, about history and the way that we are approaching it. Now, why is that the case? And I want to back up a little bit. You know, when we left off last time, and I, I don't know exactly what I was talking about when 
we left off last time, but in the past, in the recent past, <laughs> um, we've been talking about this idea of the de-divination of society, of, of politics, of, of political power. And what we mean by that is in the, in the early, the ancient world, everything was divine. You know, you, 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 you had a representative government. It represented the reality of the cosmos. Uh, if you had a collection of people, a polis, that polis represented the reality of, of the people, their nature, their character. And because people have a psyche or a soul, if you will, and that soul can touch the transcendent world, the transcendence of God, that you have this kind of two-pronged thing where on one level society is a microcosm of the cosmos, meaning it's a small microscopic, if you will, microcosmic representation of, of the grand reality of, the, of God and, and the universe that he's created. So if God's on the throne and all power and glory and authority, then, we, then we're building a society, a kingdom, an empire uh, that represents the reality of his power of his authority. And that's why we have this ability to go destroy and to, to conquer and to subjugate the world. And on the other hand, you have this idea that man is sacred in the sense that his soul can touch that, which is holy. They can touch that, which is transcendent, which is God. And so you have a collection of people with the highest virtues, the highest morals, the most in touch with God through their souls, the most pure and beautiful. This collection of people then becomes a representation of, of a perfect society as well, because you have this macrocosm of the soul. So if the soul is the small thing within us, then, then society is a macrocosm of man's soul, a good macrocosm. Now, we could apply both those things to society now. We could just look and say, well, yeah, look at all the problems we have. Look at all the hate. Look at all the murder. Look at all the selfishness. Uh, look at all the sexual deviancy. I mean, just all this crazy stuff, the, the greed and, and um, the lying and deception, the, the abuse of power, the corruption. Like there's just all this stuff going on right now in our society. And, you know, there's a lot of good. Like if you want to look around, you can find good. You know, I, I just going back to the, the beach, you know, Lydia and I were going to the beach today and I was, it's kind of this weird thing because I'm driving back from being at the beach and I'm just looking, you know, there are people uh, riding bicycles and, you know, just living their life and a beautiful life. I have to say, I mean, when you're, the homes near the beach are, are, you know, multi-million dollar homes, um, and so as you're driving through this, you know, we're on Sullivan's Island, which is, you know, quite wealthy and beautiful, et cetera. But I'm driving through this and I'm like, how could this be true while all the other stuff that I see going on in our, in our country, uh, those are also true at the same time, just all these terrible things. But, you know, that, that is the world we live in. There are a lot of good things if you want to look for them. And you should. You should dwell in those things which are good and pure and holy and... So, so that's not an argument, but at the same time, at the same time, it's hard to, to, to refute the argument that darkness, uh, that evil, uh, that things like totalitarianism, uh, the abuse of power and so on, uh, it's hard to make the argument that those things are not on the rise. They are on the rise. They are ascendant. And if you look at the way that human beings behave, 
you know, you may find even your neighbors. I mean, it depends what part of the country you live in. Um, I found, you know, when we lived in New York, there were neighbors that, that wouldn't make eye contact for 10, 15, 20, you could, 20 years, you could live all your life in a neighborhood and never know some of the people just a door or two down from you in the suburbs, by the way, not in the city. And, and yet at the same time, uh, you can live in a part of the country of wonderful neighbors and, uh, very generous and friendly. Uh, and that can happen in New York too. I'm not saying that all of New York state is this way, but just, um, you, you know, you, it, the world is getting harder, it's getting colder, and it's getting darker. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to, to try to convince you of that. If you, if you don't agree, then I, yeah, I don't even know why you're listening to this podcast, because there are probably some other podcasts that you would find more edifying. <laughs> but uh, you're welcome to stick around, though. Uh, you don't have to leave. Anyway, so you could make the argument that what we see in society today is a macrocosm of what's in the souls of the people. It is a representation of the values that we hold as a group. Uh, and, and you know, our, our selfishness, uh, you know, if you look at what happened when we went through COVID, I mean, you know, whether you, whether you agree with getting a vaccine or not, um, those of you that know me know I'm against that kind of thing, but whether you agree with it or not, the, and I'm not anti-vax, I mean, I've been vaccinated as a child, but uh, for things like polio and all that jazz, um, there were people that were like, just so quick to say, if you don't get this vax, you ought to be cut out of society. I mean, you shouldn't be allowed to work. You shouldn't be allowed to travel. You shouldn't be allowed to go get food for yourself. I mean, it was like, you know, so... And it wasn't just a couple people. I mean, it was just, that was a widely held feeling in the country. I mean, thank God that those laws weren't passed, but, but this is how you have societies as a representation of what's in the hearts and souls of the people that comprise that society, that macrocosm. So you see the ancient societies, a microcosm of the cosmos, you know, clearly God is on our side, otherwise we wouldn't be victorious. And you have societies as a macrocosm of the souls of men. But, but when we talk about the de-divination of society, what happened in the, the, the ancient Roman world when Christianity hit the scene is the divine aspect, the transcendent aspect, whether it's the, the soulish transcendence or the cosmic transcendence that you see in those two ways of thinking about it, those were wrapped up in the, the govern, government, the governance. The, the king was, you know, it's like, like divinely appointed by God. It's often they were like God emperors, you know, and, and, and these, you know, perfect individuals uh, with perfect souls, these kind of philosophers and, and higher, higher aristocratic members of the Greek society, let's say, you know, they were, they were holy and elevated, but, but the, the government that ran those societies was, was not even just like kind of connected to the religion. It's not like they had a state religion. The governance was religious. There was no separation. There wasn't even, you know, we think of like church and state as two things, that we should keep separated, you know, oh, separation of church and state. My goodness, if you have a faith, you shouldn't really be allowed to be in government. Actually, let's clarify that. You can have any faith except for Christianity, uh, because if you're a Christian, we don't want you in government. I mean, that's just, it's just so uh, silly. 
but 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 we think of church and state as two separate things, whether they're together or not, we think of them as two things. So we get uptight if we think they're not separated, but we don't think of them as one thing. We just get nervous that like church and state are getting too close or they're or they're collaborating together. But it but but in the ancient world, leading up to Rome, there wasn't a church and state. There was no difference. State and church, you know, I'm using that in figurative terms. Obviously, this wasn't Christianity uh, at the time. But state and church were one and the same. You know, the emperor was expected to hold uh, the proper feast, the proper sacrifices, to, to pay for all, you know, the priests and pay for all the civic, um, you know, displays of worship. I mean, it was, it was, it was all integrated. There were no church and state and Christianity came along and identified two separate things. Oh, there's a church and there's a state. And, and the de-divination happened when they said, well, Hey, you know what? We should have a Pope and over the church because the church is really for spiritual stuff. And the state should have an emperor or a king, and that's for temporal stuff, things of this earth. So there's, the, you know, and this isn't an American constitutional discussion here, but this is where you get this separation of church and state. This really comes out of um, out of um, St. Augustine's thinking and uh, the city of God. Uh, a lot of this can be unpacked from that. But the, but the Christianity, by by bringing this kind of, soteriological way of thinking, this, this way of, of self, how does one become saved? What does it mean, eternal life and salvation, the life of the spirit? And, and then recognizing that, 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 that God's kingdom is a different kingdom. It's not of this world. And yes, God can favor kings. He can favor people. He can he can be set his face against a king or a, or a people if they're you know, not honoring him, or if they're, they're unfaithful, or if they're they're wicked, um, and the Old Testament is you know full of those both kinds of examples. But Christianity, when it came uh, on the scene, and specifically in Rome, it de-divinized government. It de-divinized government and said, "Nope, uh, the government really is about the temporal world. It's about." You know, laws that have to do with, uh, uh, you know, building roads and maintaining armies and, and maintaining the peace and, you know, protecting people's private property, uh, settling disputes between landowners and just all these kinds of things that have to do with everyday life on this earth, temporal. And the church is responsible for God's kingdom, the spiritual thing, the this, this city of God. And, and it has its own emperor, the Pope. And so you have this idea of this separation. So the reason Joachim, I see either I was, about, I was just about to say Joachim, the reason that Joachim of Flora becomes relevant or important is because ever since there was the de-divination, the removal of the divine, of the, of the transcendent from government, the the the... The, the world, and I don't mean that like 
a Christian, non-Christian, the world. It was Christians will often refer to the world as like, if you're in, you're in the body of Christ, you're in the kingdom, you're a Christian. If you're out, you're in the world. Uh, for those of you that aren't believers, um, that, that when I, when, but when I'm saying the world, I don't mean to say other than Christians, but in general, nations, kingdoms, um, empires, people have been trying to figure out how to re-divinize government. Because what happens when you de-divinize, you find that the government, the temporal government, loses meaning. The de-divination leads to a lack of meaning, especially if the church wanes in its, in its influence and power and everyday uh, integration with the life of the citizen. So you have these societies who are pretty religious. I mean, we're talking about the Middle Ages, 1200s uh, in Europe, and they are pretty religious. I mean, the church looms large. But at the same time, the, the de-divination of governance of the temporal world is kind of splitting the spiritual and the temporal world apart and consigning uh, governments to the temporal world and just saying, well, this is your area of, of, of uh, authority and activity and we'll take everything else that's transcendent. Well, then that temporal world doesn't have the same kind of meaning that it did before. You know, when, when you won a battle in the ancient days, your God went before you and vanquished your enemies. And that vanquishment was a recognition. It was a, was a, was proof that you were serving the most powerful God, that your God was more powerful than their God and that your God's will, uh, was done. And you were the instrument of that will. You weren't just sitting off to the side. You were the instrument of that will. Your life had meaning because it was connected to the transcendent reality will, power, authority of your God. And, and your whole society was organized around that, not just in war, obviously, but in your ceremonies, your, your civic and public uh, activities, festivals, and so on, your holidays, uh, your, your agriculture, your, your building, aqueducts, everything that you put your hand to was integrated, was, I should say, impregnated with the meaning um, of, of the divinized society that you lived in. So when you de-divinize a society and you say, no, the spiritual piece is over here, that's the church, make sure you go to church, make sure you don't break any of the church's laws, uh, but, but everything else is temporal. Well, well at that moment, like y you have a meaning crisis. And I don't know that anybody in the Middle Ages was saying, I believe we have a meaning crisis. That's a phrase you hear now, uh, some folks um, you know, Paul Vanderclay, Jordan Peterson, um, you know, and, and some others uh, will talk about a meaning crisis and it's a legitimate conversation. But, you know, the thing to keep in mind, I'm talking about de-divination and creating a meaning crisis in the Middle Ages, but, but that's why Joachim of Flora is so important and his thinking is so important because we are still living out the ramifications of the de-divinization of society. Now, I'm not telling you that the de-divination 
divination, but I'm kind of be able to say these words, uh, as, as the evening wears on here, um, is necessarily a bad thing. You know, I would, I would much rather live in a society that makes space for freedom of religion, let's say. I, I don't like a society that does not respect natural law. And, and so there's a difference there. I'm not saying I'm not a libertarian. Uh, you'll just let people do whatever they want to do and I'll mind my business. No, if, if you're going to do something that breaks natural law, I think that, that the society has a vested interest in saying you, you can't do that. It's not good enough to say, well, it's not hurting anybody. No, we want to order our society around what's true and good. And, and natural law, which is you know easy to understand, tells us what those things are. But at the same time, natural law doesn't have to dictate that you're you know Protestant or Catholic or you know Jewish or Muslim. I, I like living in a society where someone has the freedom to try to come to terms with God and understand who he is and what is the best way to serve him? What is the best way to order my life so that I'm honoring him and faithful to him? And, you know, if you're over there saying, well, I think the best way is is to be a Presbyterian. And I'm over here saying, well, you know, I kind of think the Baptist got it going on, which I'm I'm neither Presby or or Baptist, Baptist. Uh, Although living here in South Carolina in Charleston, um, there sure are a lot of Baptist churches. I just want to say that. I'm not sure. I think Baptist might be the state church. I'm not (laughs) not sure. We're going to a little Baptist church. Great, great people. I didn't grow up Baptist, don't necessarily have um, Baptist doctrine. I'm not anti-Baptist, but I just... It's uh, it's in culturally interesting, but I do like living in a society where there's some freedom of religion, where an individual through their conscience can des- decide and figure out what they understand to be right and true and then order their life accordingly. So when you de-divinize the society, you lead to this this crisis of meaning that that, that society itself, that governance, that, that civic life lacks meaning. And you see, the meaning that you could enjoy before, e- even if even if the society didn't specifically believe in the Christian conception of salvation, meaning there's going to be eternal life, you know, if you if you if you believe on Christ, you you follow Him, you submit to Him, you allow the, His work to 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 save you. Uh, you allow for him to intercede before the Father on your behalf, the, to wash, to have your sins washed away in his blood. Uh, you're justified in, in your faith in him, through your faith in him. And then you're leading this life of sanctification where you're becoming more and more like him through spiritual disciplines and so on. If you don't, you don't believe that way necessarily, that's fine. But And I'm talking about the ancient world here that kind of salvation, they, they still believed in a kind of salvation, a, a sense that, that I'm participating in this great pageant, that I'm honoring my God, that I'm being faithful to my God, and he's blessing me back. And so, so whether the salvation is in this life, meaning I have a full and good and, and, and you know, victorious, honorable, virtuous life now, or that I'm going to be with him, whoever this God is, uh, for eternity, or you know, I'm going to live forever in some way. But all these divinized societies gave their uh, citizens, their members, uh, 
a way to participate in salvation. I'm using salvation for lack of a better word to participate in, in the reality of that God's kingdom, that God's reality, that God's cosmos. As soon as you de-divinize society, then the individual through their everyday life has no way to participate in, in, in their God's reality. There's no way to find salvation through civic life, through everyday life, through, through living the way that men, mankind, lives through the centuries, through the ages, through the generations. And so there's this hunger, this desire to re-divinize society because all of a sudden, why does this all matter? It's almost like none of this matters because the only thing that matters is what the church has got over here. It's eternal life. I mean, if this thing's temporary, if this thing's broken, if it's marred by sin, if it's going to just burn and there's going to be, it's going to be replaced someday by this, you know, perfect, uh, idyllic world and I'm going to be perfect in this idyllic world and healthy and, and I'm going to live forever and no, no sickness, no sorrow, no, no hunger, no, no threat of death, just eternal life, uh, everything good, then this thing doesn't mean anything anymore. And why, why should I even care? Why should I bother? Well, the world doesn't work when people don't care. So there's this desire uh, in societies to re-divinize the society, to re-divinize representative government, government, to somehow find a way forward. So let's talk about Joachim, Joachim of Flora, also known as Joachim of Fiori. Uh, if you look him up online, you're going to find Joachim of Fiori as kind of the main name, but for some reason, Vogelin back in 1952 referred to him as Joachim of Flora. He's known by both names. Uh, there's no error there. And that's a common thing. Often people in Europe back in the Middle Ages were identified by various areas that they were from. Sometimes different areas are known from different areas or then the city or town that you were from changes name. So we have Joachim of Flora. He was born in 1135, died in 12... 05. So essentially a 12th century person. I may have from time to time referred to him as maybe 11th century or maybe 13th, but 12th century for uh, to set the record straight. He was Italian, he's Catholic. He was uh, a monk, uh, a priest, became abbot uh, of a monastery for a period of time. He was a theologian. He was especially interested in apocalyptic literature and specifically the book of Revelation, John, John's Revelation in the New Testament. He was even the founder of a monastic order um, in, in Fiori, uh, San Giovanni. But anyway, he was considered one of the most uh, um, apocalyptic thinkers of the Middle Ages. He was one of the most recognized or most influential, most important apocalyptic thinkers of the Middle Ages. And he possibly inspired um, Dante's The Divine Comedy. Some, some people think that uh, Dante's Divine Comedy was inspired by Joachim's work. He was mainly focused on apocalyptic scripture, John's revelation, as I mentioned, um, you know, he, he was very much uh, 
interested in the end, uh, the perusa, the, the end times, the apocalypse. And so you find Joachim of Flora v- actually quite more influential than, than we would know because his name isn't really a name that we know. You, you don't really hear about him. You, you may hear of other Middle Age um, middle age thinkers. Boy, the middle age thinkers, that's uh, thinkers of the middle ages. That's a little different than a middle age thinker. I'm probably a, <laughs> I'm probably a middle aged thinker. I'm a middle aged guy trying to think. But um, you, you think of you know great minds that come from the middle ages or just well known. And you know, like a, a William Shakespeare. Uh, when, when was Shakespeare? Let's look him up. Let's look up uh, William. Shatner. No, we don't want Shatner. We want Shakespeare. So William Shakespeare, uh, born in the 1500s. So, you know, there are names that we know from the Middle Ages that, you know, when mentioned, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar. And and Shakespeare, I'm not sure if the 1500s would be considered the Middle Age. I mean, it's probably the, if it is, it's the end of it. Um, but Joachim, I almost said Joachim, Joachim of Flora, not a name that you or I would know, but at the time he was considered one of the greatest thinkers. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting, um, Richard the Lionheart, I mean, we've all heard of Richard the Lionheart, one of the greatest, uh, you know, English kings, led crusades, etc. cetera. He, he met with Joachim in Messina before leaving on the third crusade. And he met with him because he, he wanted uh, uh, prophetic advice. He's like, please give me prophetic advice before I, I head out in this trip. Now, Joachim was never beatified, which means made into a saint, but um, even, da- I think it was Dante, but others have said, hey, there are miracles attributed to him. Uh, he, he, he actually is venerated on May 29th. So even though he was never made a saint by the Catholic Church, he, he is to this day venerated on May 29th every year. And it's interesting, a number of Joachim's ideas were branded heretical. Like, you know, what we're going to talk about in a moment here, his kind of uh, conception of history is branded heretical by the church. And at the same time, though, the church actually quite respected him. They never branded him a heretic. So often when the church went after his ideas, they went after some of his followers. Joachim was actually in good relationship uh, with the Pope at the time. He would submit his writings to the Pope. Um... So it's interesting. This wasn't some, you know, oftentimes in our movies, we see this kind of strange thinker that is an outsider. He's, he's you know, running against the authorities and he's undermining because he's the true revolutionary. He's the guy that really gets it. And the institutions and authorities, they're just wrong. And that wasn't the case. Joachim was not running afoul or askance, as it were, uh, with the authorities. He was actually in quite well and, and um, respected and continues to this day to be respected. But his ideas actually started cults. Uh, they started heretical groups, um, the groups that were denounced, uh, groups that were oppressed, that were, that were shut down by the Catholic Church. And for good reason. A lot of his thinking um, you know, is heretical. It's not orthodox and, and uh, it gets more into Gnosticism than anything else. But yeah, so Richard the Lionheart had uh, met with him before going off on the Third Crusade. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the Queen of 
Cicely at the time met face to face with him, asked for her, him to pray for her, et cetera. Um, you know, he was a very regarded, he'd met with the Pope. He'd been to, to Vienna or sorry, not Vienna. He'd been to the Vatican, that other V, uh, never made into a saint, but, but people tried, uh, he's venerated, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So let's talk about his theory. Now the theory is, as I said, quite Gnostic and it sets up really a template that affects modern history, modern political science to this day modernism. So the ideas that, that Joachim put forth are still having an impact on, on modern society and the way that we self-interpret our own history and our own political activities. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Like he created a framework that we've kind of adopted without even realizing it. We've adopted it just assuming that it's reality or true, which is stunning for something that was developed and came out of the 12th century, the 1100s. I mean, you think about the fact that we're still kind of playing out some of his ideas is stunning. Now, the question before we get into the specific ideas is like, well, how, how could that happen? I was talking just a moment ago about this idea of redivination. Um, how do we get you know temporal power redivinized? Um, how do we give it meaning? And and this part of the reason is you know we the, the society back then was oscillating. It was very Christian. It was a very Christian society. And there's this oscillation between this idea of the second coming of Christ, like Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of God will be fully in power, fully established, fully manifested. No more of all the, no more problems, no more war, no more pestilence. It's God's kingdom in full swing. And that's what Jesus' second coming. So on one hand, you've got that, but the oscillating between this other side, which is the church as the apocalypse of Christ in history. And the word apocalypse, you, you and I hear apocalypse and we think, you know, because of movies and et cetera, we think of this, the end of the world. We think of the apocalypse as like things blowing up and ripping apart and, you know, the, the skies and angels coming down and, you know, spiritual battles and so on. That's apocalyptic kind of visions, et cetera. But the, but the Greek word apocalypse means to kind of like tear open or remove the lid to expose something. It's, it's the revelation of something. It's the exposure of something. And so the reason they talk about the apocalypse at the end time, it's like this great revealing. Christ comes back, you know, like, like the lid is torn off, the curtains pulled back and you can now see everything and it's being exposed. It's this great ending because everything is being exposed. So, so there's this oscillation between the idea that Christ is coming back and when he does, he's going to set up his kingdom and the idea that the church is the kind of revealing of Christ in history in the temporal world, that, that Christians are the body of Christ. So in this world right now, in some kind of mystical way, we are the embodiment of Jesus Christ. And the problem that the church was up against and society was up against was there was this expectation coming out of uh, Christ's ascension into heaven in the early church that, that he was going to come back soon. I mean, you and I are sitting here 2,000 years later and we're like, yeah, he's coming back sometime. And you, you look around and you go, well, it's getting pretty bad. I, I, it must be soon because golly, look how bad it is right now. But back then they also thought it was getting bad and they had an expectation that Jesus was coming back imminently. He was coming back soon, that he was returning. 
And the, the problem was, as, as time and history was going on, that wasn't happening. Jesus didn't come back right away. He still hasn't come back. And so the, you get this idea that like, well, wait a minute, he's supposed to come back, make everything right and establish his kingdom. But uh, hang on a minute, we're the, we're the body of Christ on the earth now. And there's, so there's this tension between these two true ideas. And this tension creates this desire. It's like, can we, can we start making the kingdom of God on earth now? We're Christ. We're his body. We are the apocalypse of Christ. We're the revelation of Christ, the revealing of him on this earth. Can we start to establish his kingdom now? His kingdom now, or, or should we? Are we misunderstanding things? Is it that we're supposed to create God's kingdom on earth now? This sort of utopia, this heaven on earth. And we can do this through the work of the church in the temporal world. And so, so you have this tension and you have this individual, this, as I was saying before, Joachim, it's really Joachim of Flora, who is fixated on apocalyptic literature and times literature, this whole idea of like what's going on here. And he comes up with a conception of history that, leads really to this kind of heretical model that we're, that we're going to cover. So let's talk about it. No, no, no more, no more teasing this. Let's get into it. So that, so it's really, I guess you could call it his theory of the three ages. Essentially what Joachim did was he took the Trinity and he said, well, there are three parts. There's God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. What if we what if history really, instead of being cyclical, how the ancients thought of it, that just history moves in cycles, it's never ending, but it's this kind of, you know, and you, you could take cycles from just the biological world. You have something is, is uh, born, it ages, lives, et cetera, it dies, that, that death then ends up producing new life, and you just have this cycle. And you have a cycle of seasons, you have spring, summer, autumn, uh, winter. So you, so you have these never-ending cycles in nature and in life and in the cosmos. And there's this, you know, tr you know we, we know that we're traveling around the sun. They seem to think that the sun was traveling around them back then. But regardless, they could see, you know, uh, celestial cycles at play. And so the ancients thought of history as, as, as cyclical. And, and now you have this idea that, no, history is going somewhere. Christianity brings this idea that history is going somewhere. And so what, what uh, Joachim, I keep wanting to say Joachim, Joachim brings this model. He's like, well, what if, what if they, there are ages to history? What if history's going to a somewhere you know, different necessarily than just Jesus coming back? And so he has these, the theory of the three ages. And he took the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he mapped out ages or dispensations based on each personality of the Trinity. So you have an age of the Father, an age of the Son, and an age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Father would essentially, and, the, and these are mappable times in history. These are, they can be, they can be um, dated. So the age of the Father coincides with the Old Testament. And it essentially, the, the, and each one of these ages has kind of a nature. There's an aspect to it that makes it unique. These aren't just demarcations in history, but each age is kind of like a, a increasing fulfillment of spirituality. So you start kind of at one level and the, and the last age is the, the third age of the spirit is this final age of perfection. We reach a, a, an, an aspect of perfection. And so the age of the father coincides with the Old Testament. 
And it's essentially obedience to the, to, to the rules of God. It's the law. It's the age of the law. Then you get the age of the sun. And this is from Christ's birth. And Joachim calculated that it was going to go to the year 1260. Now, he never got to see the fulfillment of that because he died in 1202, I think I said. Yeah, 1202. So the age of the sun was uh, from Christ's birth to 1260. This is kind of marked by the New Testament. And this is, this is the age where man becomes the s- God's son, the son of God. Now, now, I don't know, you know, again, I haven't dug in, I haven't read Joachim, and this is kind of looking at Vogelin's work, and then, of course, maybe doing a little bit of research on my own through Wikipedia, et cetera, just trying to get a better picture on Joachim. But but this, I, I don't know if he's talking about all men becoming the sons of God, or if it's just, you know, Christ as son of God. But but I think the concept is this idea of, of, of men, human beings, becoming sons, Again, if you go back to this idea of, of the church being the body of Christ, um, that that we are becoming the apocalypse, the, the 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 revelation of Christ, the manifestation of Christ on earth, uh, then this idea of the age of the sun is where where people become sons of God. You have a you have a earth populated uh, with people that are Christians. And then the last age is the age of the Holy Spirit. And this, this is kind of like a, this, this is the culmination, this increasing spiritual fulfillment. This age of the Holy Spirit is a contemplative kind of utopia of a, a, like a new dispensation of universal love. Uh, it transcends the letter of the gospel. Uh, and it gets into some really weird stuff, like like Joachim saying, hey, in the age of the spirit, we'll no longer need the church. We won't need the pope. We won't need all these folks because because we'll kind of almost, it, it's almost like this, again, it's very Gnostic, this Gnostic kind of, we, we achieve this higher level of love and unity. The charismatic gifts are what you know, unite us. We don't need grace to be mediated through the sacraments. So depending on your, your background as a Christian, uh, you know, if you're coming from all different backgrounds, I mean, not one individual, but my listeners, you're, I know you're coming from all different backgrounds, from atheists all the way to Orthodox Christians and everything in between. You know, the church teaches historically, uh, and this would be accepted, you know, on one level or another by almost any Orthodox, small o, just basic Christian, that that grace can be mediated through the sacraments. So, so sacraments can be things like marriage, uh, the sacrament of marriage in the church. Marriage is a sacrament. It's a sacramental thing. It's a it's a holy thing that touches the temporal world. And through marriage, one can experience, can can acquire, can can participate in God's grace. It's it's a it's a, it's not the only way to receive God's grace, but it is a way to receive grace. Uh, baptism, another sacrament in the church, classic sacrament. Uh, the Eucharist, another, or or communion, another sacrament, a way to receive grace. Now, you get into a little bit of a sticky wicket here with, you know, Orthodox Christians versus Catholic, Roman Catholic Christians versus Protestant Christians. A lot of Protestants, kind of low church, not high church necessarily, but low church Protestants will say, no, communion is really just, um, it's it's a remembrance. We're not participating, you know, grace isn't necessarily mediated through communion. Um, God's grace is, is a gift, et cetera, but it, you, you don't get it from communion. The church doesn't control that. Whereas high church Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, they have different kind of 
theological mechanisms that they understand that that grace is is delivered. <laughs> Some say it's just a mystery. Others are like, well, the host actually becomes Jesus' actual body and you're eating his flesh and drinking his actual blood through, you know, trans uh, substantiation if you're Catholic and Orthodox. Well, it's not quite that way. I mean, so there are arguments on all that. But the idea being like when you take communion, you're actually, part, it's a sacramental way to, to, to have grace mediated to you. What, what, what Joachim is saying, and regardless of whatever you believe, I mean, I'm not trying to get you to think one way or the other, but the idea is that we're going to have this unified collection of autonomous individuals, autonomous persons, that we don't need institutions anymore to mediate anything. We don't need uh, the Pope. We don't need the church. We don't need you know pastors. We don't need all this kind of stuff because now we have just the power of the spirit and you've got this growing group of people that are almost becoming this sort of like enlightened Gnostic mystics that are unified through the power of the Holy Spirit, the charismatic gifts and so on, direct access to God, no need for mediators, no need for mediation, no need for grace to be delivered through sacramental activities and sacramental living. It's just like, wow, you're just living in the, in, in the, in the power of the Spirit. And by the way, I, I, you know, I grew up Catholic. Uh, I've spent time in Anglican. I spent a little bit of time uh, tra- uh, kind of tangentially around, tangentially around the Orthodox. I've, I am not Orthodox. I'm not trying to claim like, oh, I know. I've got a, a friend or two. I've, you know, I'm nibble around the edges, read up a little bit. So I'm kind of familiar to, as an outsider, probably more than most outsiders. Um, it's a lot of time in charismatic circles and, uh, and, you know, so on. So where I'm going with that is say uh, some of what Joachim of Flora is saying sounds very much like like a non-denominational Pentecostal or, or charismatic church. I'm not accusing you guys, by the way, because I, I spent a lot of time in that world at coming out of Catholicism in the, in the 1980s. But I just want to say like a lot of what he was teaching and preaching back in 1100, the 1100s, uh, adheres closely to kind of the ideal state that that the charismatics or Pentecostals might espouse. Uh, I was even involved in home church, house church was a lot, a lot of that as well. You know, um, we, maybe someday we'll unpack that, but he's got these three ages, this theory of the three ages. And like I said, each age is like a a further increase of spiritual fulfillment. And that third age is critical because the, the, the third age, that age of the spirit is like the culmination. So, so on one, so, you know, go back to this idea that like, well, gee, Christ is not returning, which means his kingdom is not being set up. You got Joachim of Flora coming and saying, well, hang on a second. I actually think history is going somewhere. There's a culmination in history. And that culmination is, is a perfection of, of life on earth. I don't think he was coming out saying we don't need Jesus to return, but it was, but it was a Gnostic kind of replacement of this idea that Christ will return and establish his kingdom because there was this tension between he's not, it, it doesn't seem like he is coming back. And at the same time, it's promised. And, and, and alongside that, we're supposed to be his body. So, so why, you know, why, why can't we experience this? And again, this was this attempt to redivinize temporal life, temporal life, uh, if you're just involved in the spiritual world and then the temporal aspect of life is is really an age of that's just kind of dying, like it has no purpose anymore. There's not a pantheon of gods. They're not involved in my everyday living. They're not involved in every little thing, decision I you know, make. 
it's just like, that's all stripped out. And so now I've got the spiritual aspect. I'm part of a spiritual body. I'm waiting for the manifestation or realization and fulfillment of a spiritual kingdom. And meanwhile, this temporal world is, is flawed and broken. It's going to pass away into the kind of the dust heap of history, if you will, to be forgotten, actually, not even ever remembered in, in the age to come. Then there's this, it's like, wait, what if, what if history actually itself is expecting us to usher in, to bring this thing in? And it's interesting, you know, uh, Joachim identified a leader. So there's symbols like, is he, for each one of these, um, each one of these ages, he had symbols. We'll get to those in a second. But the first age was the kind of the age of the layman, you know, and its leader was Abraham. So you have Abraham kind of, he, he wasn't necessarily a priest. He was, he was just a guy. He was a, you know, goat herder. I don't know what he was. Uh, he, he, he did eventually become a herder because he had, you know, he was really phenomenally materially successful uh, for a wandering, um, you know, Semite out in the, in the desert that left his people. But, uh, you know, he was just a, a layman that God called and he was the leader of that, of that, uh, age of the father. Uh, the second age is really the, the age of the priest. Christ is this priest that comes and mediates on behalf of, he will offer up the sacrifice on behalf of the people. He will make sacrifice before God. The sacrifice will be found acceptable. Uh, of course, he is that sacrifice, but he is the priest, uh, the priest that, that is also king. He's uh, kind of in the order of Melchizedek. We can get into that too. You guys are like, where are you? If you, if you haven't, if you don't have a lot of scriptural fluency, I do apologize. I, I would, I would look, I would suggest like spend time in scripture. It's fascinating. It, it gets a bad rap. The world like, oh, it's a bunch of fairy tales. It, it is phenomenally fascinating. There's just so much, there's so much richness in there. Uh, and even if you're not a Christian, I mean, to spend time in scripture, to unpack it, to understand it's an ancient document and it's an ancient document written throughout the ages by multiple, uh, you know, multiple writers, uh, Christians, obviously we believe that it has one author, which is God. Uh, it's, it's divinely inspired, but it's just a fascinating, fascinating. There's, there, there's no other piece of, of literature on the face of the earth like it. Anyway, just throw that out there. Sorry, uh, uh, add over. This this podcast sponsored by God. <laughs> it's like, make sure to get God uh, while supplies last. Okay, uh, even that's a, uh, a bad statement, while supplies last. So first age, age of the layman, Abraham's its leader. Second age, uh, the kind of life of the priest or age of the priest, that's Christ as leader. And this last third age is the life of the monk. Uh, you know, he, what Joachim says is the life of the monk because monks are by nature, not necessarily part of the bigger hierarchy. They're often on their own. They're very contemplative. They're divorced from society. They're not in, 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 in integrated into all these, um, all this infrastructure and, and all these, um, uh, institutions. And, and so it's, it's kind of like this, you know, it, it, almost like this wandering individual, this spiritual individual. And he identifies that leader. He says, I don't know who this person is, but they're essentially the Duke of Babylon is, is what he referred to him, uh, the Duke of Babylon. So it's very interesting. I don't, I don't, I'd love to unpack that title. Vogelin doesn't get into why that is the title of the leader of the third age, the third and final age. But for some reason, that's, that's what um, old, uh, old uh, Joachim 
Name them. Okay, so Joachim has this collection of symbols, and this is an important part, is in, in, to talk about these collection of symbols that go along with his theory of the three ages, because these symbols carry through to today. And these thim- symbols, these thimbles, I almost said, <laughs> thimbles, welcome to a sewing uh, podcast with Mike Gaston. These symbols carry through to today and they inform the way we think today. So th- I want to I wanna just touch on these. I'm not going to go nuts because, again, we're really unpacking Vogelin and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no Middle Ages apocalyptic uh, expert here, so we're just going to talk about it real quick. So the fir- there, there, there are four symbols uh, that I captured. The first one is, is a conception of history as three ages. You see this symbol actually carry through. So, so the, we didn't think about history as three ages before. Um, but then when you look at the work of Joachim and you go forward, you see this idea of, of a third and final realm uh, showing up in the thinking of Comte or Comte, Comte uh, Hegel, Marx, even, even Nazi thinking, National Socialism, uh, has this idea of the third realm, the third Reich, the third Rome. It's like this this final manifestation, this culmination of history embodied in this you know given movement. I mean, it, it's just really fascinating. I mean, Marx uh, envisioned three phases of communism, you know, culminating in global domination and in the brotherhood of all men and, you know, the, the eradication of, of uh, material want and all this kind of stuff. That hasn't worked out so well, except for, we, we, you know, for some reason we keep trying. Um, Hegel, who informed Marx, you know, German philosopher and, you know, kind of quasi-Christian, not, I wouldn't call him a theologian, but he had some Christian ideas. Um, but again, his conception uh, very unorthodox, uh, but also embraces these three stages. Um, you know, Nazi Germany saw itself in similar light as the as the Third Reich, uh, the Third Realm, and uh, so on. So, so and even even Comte, um, uh, he he also saw this in the in the kind of. Um, culmination of science, of positivism, you know, that, that science was going to bring this, this third and final realm. So anyway, interesting stuff. So the conception of history as three ages, that's, that's one of the symbols that, that, um, that Joachim brought to the table. The second one is the symbol of the leader. Each one of these ages always has a leader, the Duke, the, um, and that would be, you know, you, you see that even now, like if you look at, and I mentioned Comte, you look at Condorcet, you look at Marx, even Nietzsche or Nietzsche, they all had this conception of a Superman, this, this kind of idealized, perfected man, this, these individuals that, that achieve some type of perfection. It's almost like an evolutionary, uh, Perfection, but not just physical. This this kind of intellectual perfection, philosophical perfection, uh, power. The perfection of power. The perfection of of even their ethics and morals. Their willingness to throw away certain baggage, quote unquote, that holds men back from becoming the best they can. I mean, Nietzsche was very 
strong in this idea of, of um, you know, unloading all this nonsense Christianity, this weakness of the slave religion. He hated Christianity uh, to become a Superman, this Ubermensch. And so you see this in Marx. You see this in Comte and Condorcet and Nietzsche's thinking, this idea of the Superman and the Superman really ushering in and leading this, this final perfect age where finally mankind can throw off the shackles of bondage and become uh, what mankind has always been destined to become. Very interesting. Also, number three, and this one overlaps a little with the second one, that's the prophet of the new age. There's usually either like a Gnostic prophet historically, this this one kind of foretelling the thing to come. You could say that Joachim in this instance is the Gnostic prophet, you know, letting people know that uh, here's here's what's going on, and here's what's coming, and here's what's to ex- here what you should expect. Today, it would be more a Gnostic intellectual, an intellectual that's embracing these ideas, um, and we we can unpack that some other time. But this this Gnostic intellectual, it doesn't have to be someone claiming to be a prophet. I mean, I'm not I'm not picking on him, but you know, Jordan Peterson uh, until recently has has been kind of a Gnostic intellectual. There's a lot of Gnostic intellectuals, people that say, hey, if, if you can get the right mindset, if you can unlock secret knowledge, you can get to the next level. Now, to his credit, Peterson, uh, for as Gnostic as he has been historically, I kind of like back in 2017 when I first, when he was first on my radar, thought this guy's like really a Gnostic. He's, he's Jungian. Uh, Jung was quite a Gnostic as well, uh, Jung. And um, I thought a lot of Peterson's stuff was Gnostic in its, like his Old Testament series, uh, Genesis series, et cetera. I thought that was a very Gnostic kind of reading of the Old Testament. At the same time, it was very practical. I mean, you know, his 12 rules or whatever book, it was like, hey, like make your bed before you fix the world, fix yourself. Like make, you know, hey, Buster, uh, make your bed. I, I, I can't do the the Peterson uh voice, but, you know, he's very much like, just get your own act together before you start worrying about everybody else. Not necessarily Gnostic, uh, esoteric um, knowledge, but at the same time, a lot of his thinking and teaching and the way that he, the lens he looked through is a very Gnostic lens and, and may still be. I I, I don't want to, I, I, I guess I'm being sensitive to Peterson, not because I'm a big fanboy, but I do see this, this kind of um, struggle to understand, come to terms with Christ. And so I don't want to denigrate him, although I should say his thinking is very Gnostic. But at the same time, I'm praying I'd love to see him kind of come into a full uh, soteriologic uh, understanding of Christ and relationship with him. So so the prophet of the new age, Gnostic prophet or Gnostic inter- intellectual, if we can just understand these deeper hidden truths. You see a lot of this, too, just culturally. Um, in kind of the 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 hack culture, you know, uh, what's Andrew Huberman, you know, Joe Rogan, they're all looking for these like, you know, secret chemical hacks. And if you just do this thing to neuro imprint your brain and neurocognition and, you know, I wake up at 407 every eight every morning and I splash ice cold water into my eyeballs and then I do deep breathing meditation and you do all this like secret knowledge stuff. And if you do it, you're going to kind of, you know, realize, manifest your greatest potential. There's, there's, there's a very deep Gnostic, um, thread, uh, stream, I should say, running through our culture right now, which is kind of live in it. And the last one, the fourth symbol is the brotherhood of autonomous persons. This idea that 
the institutions are gone, the church is gone, there's no more mediating of grace through sacraments, but that that people are united in spirit. Now, obviously, this started out more of a Christ-Christian centric, Christ-centric message that the, the people of the church, the Christians, the believers will be united. But this is this has become secularized. This thing has kind of changed over time from from a Christian something that's come out of Christianity that's become secularized. And you can look at our society right now. I mean there's this this sense that if that that we want we want national unity. We want global unity. We want everybody to believe the same things. In fact, people that will not agree with us on on all these progressive topics, like you know the way that we tax, the way that we, the power that government has, the um, the the need for universal health care or even health care's authority to shut your life down if you're under threat. Like you can't decide for yourself if you're going to get the flu. We have to dictate to you. You have to take these shots or you'll lose your job. You you have to embrace um, homosexual marriage. You have to embrace children. You know being read to by. Uh, by drag queens, you know, you have to embrace transgenderism as good and normal. Like, like there's this, you, we have to be unified in our understanding and agreement. Uh, and if we're not, then we have to destroy those or ostracize those, you know, push them out of society. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for understanding the world a different way. So this is the same. It's this this brotherhood of autonomous persons. Uh, we're all free. We're all independent, but we all have to believe the same thing or else. So, so you see this these these four symbols, and you see them kind of come forward through history. You can see this idea of the the final age. You know, the, the National Socialists, the Nazis saw themselves the Third Reich. Uh, the Russian Empire leading up to the Bolshevik Revolution viewed itself as like as the final and third Rome, the, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, I should say. They saw themselves as the final, the embodiment of the final Rome. And then even the Russian Bolshevik Revolution and the communists thereafter saw themselves as the manifestation of the third and final age, according to the way that Marx laid it out. Okay, uh, a lot of that, like I said, um, in Western societies, it's it's how now we interpret ourselves. We look at ourselves through this lens. Are we moving uh, to this final age? Are we are we becoming perfected? Are we being unified uh, in our as autonomous individuals? But are we being unified in spirit where we don't need um, any kind of mediating institutions? Uh, are, are we moving towards a utopia? Are we able to create uh, the perfect version of the human? The very fact, I mean, I, you, you may look at the transgender movement and think this is just bizarre, and it is. But th- this underlying that is this idea that we don't have to let nature dictate anything to us, that we can choose uh, what we're going to be, who we're going to be, and how we're going to experience life. And we can just do this through the power of, of political will, through the power of um, biomedical engineering and drugs and chemistry, that mankind is is creating a utopia, a perfect world. So, so for as much rancor and division, hurt and pain that something like the transgender movement is causing, causing both the individuals getting caught up in it and, and, and also the people that, that love those people, that the family members, the spouses, the siblings, the parents, uh, the communities, that, you know, you're being put in a position where you're like, you have to embrace this as a good thing or else you're an evil person. 
but but this thing is really a, 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 this this head rising up saying we can create our own world we can create our own utopia we can create our own humanity i mean we're already moving past transgenderism into transhumanism so transgenderism isn't the end i mean we're 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 wanting to start playing with the human genetic code in ways that would would pass forward into subsequent generations of humans, which over time you have to wonder at what point are we not human anymore? So, so what I'm getting at is not to, to freak everybody out, but just to say Joachim of Flora or Fiori had this conception of this perfect age with a leader, with a, with a Gnostic prophet. Uh, and in the, in the, what it would look like is this, this, perfection, no more church needed, no more grace needed to be mediated, no more institutions, but really just this collection of, of kind of a brotherhood, I guess, of autonomous persons, these, these free individuals that are unified in spirit across the globe, that you would have this kind of almost ubermensch type uh, manifestation of human, humanity. And that this would be a perfect age, that through that, and, and we're, you know, you see it now, that we're trying through science, social engineering, uh, and, and technology, et cetera, to, to create this, this perfect world. So, look, as I said before, I'm not necessarily the guy that's in the position to convince you th- through uh, a litany of all kinds of details uh, why um, Vogelin's correct in saying that Joachim of Laura is at the root of the of the modern world, but we can at least agree. Um, I say we can at least agree. I don't. It's up to you to agree. I would argue. I, I find it easy to accept that at the least, Joachim of Flora brought a, a, a level of Gnosticism uh, into the Western world in a desire to redivinize temporal power, to redivinize representative government representation, and that that Gnostic element lives on today and is actually what's behind the progressive movements of our world now uh, in this desire to create their own version of heaven on earth, which is really a utopia. It's not going to be a heaven on earth, it's, but they're trying to create a secular heaven on earth a utopia, a perfect world, and and there's a there's a lot from Joachim, uh, his thinking and his conceptions that have that are even now defining and influencing the way that we look and think about life. The fact that the, the fact that history is going somewhere, meaning that the human history is going to culminate in some type of perfection. In some ways, even Christians, we tend to just embrace that without thinking. Like there's always going to be better technology. There's always going to be new and better ways of living. There's always going to be better medicine. We just assume that progress is divinely uh, uh, instituted, you know, that just always going to move forward and that that continual movement of progress, you know, better, we're getting better educated, we're getting healthier, our technology is better. So we're moving towards this, this, never-ending perfection, this, this perfection, we, we, all of us in the West tend to embrace that as just gospel, like that's true. But that's not necessarily what the gospel teaches. 
that the culmination, the apocalypse, the revealing is going to actually be quite traumatic, quite ugly, quite terrifying. And in the end, there will be a kind of a conflict that comes to a head. And in, in, in the end of that, Christ will be victorious. He's already, he's already won. But there will be this time in history, a, a time, a moment in history, uh, according to the apocalyptic literature, that that Christ will return and He will establish His kingdom. Um, now you can get into we can argue because different you know branches of the church think differently. I mean, some don't believe necessarily in an actual return. Some believe that we're just going to continue on, and uh, and others believe in it, in a return. Some think there's going to be a rapture. Others are like that's nonsense. We're not here to argue all that today. I'd love to argue it sometime. I like I like all that stuff. But even those of us that are believers often embrace some of the ideas that are behind um, Joachim of Flora's thinking that inform even today, this idea of, you know, even Gnostic intellectuals. We, we tend to embrace a lot of this idea of, like, if I can just get that secret knowledge, uh, I, I, I can then manifest, I can actualize on a level that I couldn't before. You know, sometimes the faith is boring. Sometimes the faith is dry. Sometimes the faith, you know, being a Christian, you, you, you have hope in Christ, but you don't necessarily get promised a great life now. So you have hope. Sometimes you just have to hang in there. Sometimes the sky is like brass and you're praying and there is no answer from the heavens, not even, not even a, a drop of water. Sometimes you have to just put one foot in front of the other because that's what you're asked to do. Um, so, so we, we kind of have these conceptions that tend to align more with the Gnostic view of the world than we do with an actual Christian view of the world. I'm not saying that we're not real Christians. I'm not attacking, but I'm just saying that a lot of what, um, Joachim of, of Flora introduced, we embrace almost, uh, as if like, it's just integrated into what we've always known. Uh, to take another example, just it, as I wrap this up here, another example would be we tend to embrace uh, this this uh, disintermediation, meaning I don't need all these go-betweens. I don't need institutions to mediate grace. I don't necessarily need all these sacraments. Like those are old traditions, you know, but I don't really need them now because it's really just like God looks at my heart and stuff. <laughs> so so th- th- there is, has been a lot of change over the years. In the next episode, um, I want to talk a little bit about an example that Vogelin gives. He moves forward a little bit and he shows, he talks about, you know, what does the society look like that actually embraces uh, Joachim's ideas and, and tries to implement them? And he talks about the Puritans in the 1500s in England and the period of time where they, um, they actually had control of the government. And what did that look like? So we'll cover that in the next episode. Hopefully you found this interesting. This one's a bit long. Uh, I had to actually record it over two sessions. I started last night around 9.30, got all the way up to the the Joachim piece. And I'm like, now nah, I'm really tired. Uh, hit the rack. And then this, I'm recording this right now, Friday afternoon, August 4th. Uh, it's about 4.20 right now. So the problem with recording in two sessions is like, well, for me, I've made almost two full recordings. So God bless you. If you're still listening right now, 
Do me a favor, shoot me a note. Tell me, Mike, I listened all the way to the end. You can get me at Mike at MikeGaston.com. Would love to hear from you. I always enjoy communicating with you guys. You guys are such a blessing to me. Uh, you get in touch, you give me encouragement, you let me know how some of this material affects you one way or the other or makes you think. That just means a lot to me, so thank you. Guys, uh, as always, I love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being a listener. God bless you. Uh, whether you believe him or not, I pray God blesses you, and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.